We've been talking about love for the last few weeks, and I want to just take, do another kind of take on this from a little bit different place. We've been talking about the fact that the Father's love is too great for us to handle. It's just too big. It's too great for us to understand. And if we try to understand it, the further away we get, because the very tools that we use to understand is what is hampering us from being able to experience a love that is infinite. You know, it's infinite. It's absolute. You can't describe. You know, any, have you ever thought about the fact that anything that uh, can't be measured always looks the same? And anything that is infinite can't be measured. So we've got this problem built into the Father's love. It is infinite. It can't be measured. So it always looks the same. Something that can't be measured always looks the same. The Father's love always looks the same. That outrages us because we think that there's supposed to be some sort of justice in the world when it comes to the Father's love. You know, if you do bad things, you get less of it. If you do good things, you get more of it. And if people do bad things, then they're supposed to be somehow the scales have to be balanced. And here is a father sending the love down like rain indiscriminately on the just and the unjust and the lawful and the unlawful. And we don't know what to do with that. How do we handle it? How do we process that? So we were talking about some of those things. We talked about the fact that love is expressed in graciousness, what the Hebrews called hesed, which uh, literally could be translated loving kindness, but it is the graciousness that comes out of this intense identification with the beloved that really is the heart of love, if we want to define it in a way that at least we can grasp a little bit. It's not about feelings or behavior. It's about oneness, identification with unity, and what flows out of that is the graciousness. And last week, we talked about the Trinity in terms of this love. We talked about the Trinity as being a circle dance, a constant motion where giver and receiver and lover and beloved blur into one thing, and so that the giving is the same as the receiving, and the receiving is the same as the giving. And what Jesus is actually doing is inviting us into the dance, inviting us into the blur so that we become part of that And the only way that we're ever going to be able to understand Trinity, once again, because it's non-rational, is in the motion, in the blur, in the dance. It's, it's, that's the way that we will experience as the love is leaving us and coming into us and flowing through us, we'll start to understand something about it. But what does it mean to be the beloved? If that's who we are, We are the beloved of God. What does it mean to be the beloved? Right? Who is God's beloved? How is it experienced? How can we know if we're really there or not? These are questions that we should be asking next. So I want to take the idea of love instead of trying to see it from God's perspective. Let's turn around and let's see if we can see it from ours. What does it feel like? What does it look like? How do we know if we're God's beloved? And I want to start off by reading something that comes from Henry Nouwen. How many of you are familiar with Henry Nouwen? We should all be familiar with Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen is, was uh, a Catholic priest and, and just a, a prolific writer, but one with an amazing uh, take, I suppose. Very humble, very uh, ground level, you know, easy to understand, and... and He has a way of coming at things that are interesting. This book, written toward the end of his life, was one that was written kind of on accident, he says, in his, in his uh, intro. 
He met a friend. Actually, it wasn't a friend. It was an appointment. A, a journalist from the New York Times wanted to interview him. And through the course of the interview, which is very lackluster, and he could tell the guy's heart wasn't in it, but as they started talking afterwards, he saw something in the man that caused them to become connected and basically friends for the rest of his life anyway. And this friend, who was a, a Jew, but a secular Jew, and, and someone who was just living a secular life, as he got to know Henry, he asked him, can you write a book about the spiritual life as you see it for us? For those of us who are living this secular life, just day-to-day experiences, how are we supposed to understand, process, or in any way be able to grasp the spiritual life as you see it? And the book that he wrote was called The Life of the Beloved, and it's directed at this friend of his, but by extension, all of us who are trying to live our lives in this world, and at the same time, have this dual sense that we are the beloved. So right in the first chapter of the book, he says, all I want to say to you, and he actually inserted his his friend's name, all I want to say to you is you are the beloved. And all I hope is that you can hear these words as spoken to you with all the tenderness and force that love can hold. My only desire is to make these words reverberate in every corner of your being. You are the beloved. The greatest gift my friendship can give you is the gift of your belovedness. I can give that gift only insofar as I have claimed it for myself. Isn't that what friendship is all about? Giving to each other the gift of our belovedness. I can so understand what he's trying to get across here. And I can so understand what his friend is asking for because I've been on both sides of that desk. I've been the one trying to figure this thing out and going to people and asking questions and trying to understand. And now, having experienced being the beloved, that's what I want for you. I want for you to get on the other side of the desk. And it's frustrating because it's nothing that can just be transferred. All we can do is point. And this is what Henry is trying to do. He's trying to point, but with that deep desire, you know, just want you to feel something that I feel that lets you know that you know that you know that this love is real. He continues, yes, there is that voice, the voice that speaks from above and from within and that whispers softly or declares loudly, you are my beloved, on you my favor rests. It certainly is not easy to hear that voice in a world filled with voices that shout, you are no good, you are ugly, you are worthless, you are despicable, you are nobody, unless you can demonstrate the opposite. Over the years, I have come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation, but their seductive quality often comes in the way they are part of the much larger temptation to self-rejection. When we have come to believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, then success, popularity, and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions. The real trap, however, is self-rejection. As soon as someone accuses me or criticizes me, as soon as I am rejected, left alone, or abandoned, I find myself thinking, well, that proves once again that I am nobody. My dark side says... I am no good. I deserve to be pushed aside, forgotten, 
rejected, and abandoned. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. And that's it. Everything that Jesus is about is trying to get that core truth across to us. We are hard-pressed to believe that nothing can change that fact. Nothing can change that core truth. There's nothing that we can do to alter that in any way. And so, knowing that, at least cognitively, does that mean that there's nothing for us to do? All we have to do is accept the fact that we're beloved and then just hunker down and enjoy the rest of our lives? Is, is that really what we're talking about here? Accepting this in the face of all of our fears, however, is not easy. And it's not straightforward at all. And it will require everything of us to be able to get to the place where this becomes a reality in our lives. Here's how Henry puts it. He says, If it is true that we not only are the beloved, but also have to become the beloved, if it's true that we not only are the children of God, but also have to become the children of God, if it's true that we not only are brothers and sisters, but also have to become brothers and sisters, if all that is true, how then can we get a grip on this process of becoming? There's a $64,000 question. If the spiritual life is not simply a way of being, but also a way of becoming, what then is the nature of of this becoming? And that's really the central question. Yes, the love is there. It's already there. It preceded us. We are the beloved. But what is it that we need to do if we are already the beloved? How do we also become the beloved? How do we come to live the life of the beloved as opposed to the one that we may be living now in the fear that we have that maybe we're not beloved enough? Of God. I love the way Henry thinks. I love what he's trying to do here. And so the question then is if we are all God's beloved, how can we know for sure? Aren't there some requirements? There's got to be requirements, right? To get something that great, doesn't there have to be something we got to do, some prerequisite at least? You know, this is what we need to understand. And what does the beloved of God really look like? You know, and how can that be me? In any respect. So, what I wanted to do today is to look at a true beloved of God. And maybe we can compare notes and see how we're doing against this guy. You know, we could have chosen probably anybody from Scripture, but I decided that it would be best if we chose my namesake for obvious reasons. You know, David was described as a man after God's own heart, he is described as the beloved. David's name means beloved. Interestingly enough, the name of David, you know, it's just three letters, Dalet, Vav, Dalet, in the, in the Hebrew alphabet. It comes from a three-letter root, Dod, which means, literally, to boil. Okay, how do we go from boil? Well, you know, it's interesting the way that the Hebrews, their mind works, you know. Do you know what the, the word for anger in, in uh, Hebrew is, af? Af literally means nose. Okay, 
How is nose anger? Because when someone gets angry or the bull gets angry, the nostrils flare and they breathe heavily. And so, you know, if God is slow to anger, he's really slow to nose. That's the way they think. If something is boiling, that to them was the concrete uh, description of what it meant to be in love. You know, with the, with the blood boiling and everything coming up. And so this dode means to boil, but euphemistically, and it came to mean to love. It came to mean the beloved. It came to mean someone who was beloved. It also means uncle for some reason. I guess the father's brother was beloved. And so it means all of those things at the same time. This is how the word has been used. This is why it's so difficult for us to interpret and translate because there's all these layers of meaning. But God's beloved was David. It's written right into his name. But you will be hard-pressed to find a more complicated of the Hebrew patriarchs anywhere in Scripture. David is God's beloved. David is a man after God's heart. But David is a man of intense contradiction. He's a man of deep, deep flaws and deep, deep crimes that have been committed. And so how do we understand this? How are we to understand David being the beloved and what we know about David? And how much do you really know about David? I mean, have you you all studied the two books of Samuel where we get most of our information from David? Let's do a quick review, shall we? Where we we start with David is the famous story of David and Goliath. David and Goliath, right? And so here's this poor shepherd boy, common born, Bethlehem, you know, a backwater town. And Saul has just been crowned king. But he's trying to bring a loose confederation of, of, of Israelite tribes together. And he's facing a lot of enemies in, in Canaan. And the primary, the nemesis, of course, are the Philistines. And so they're at the battle lines. They're on opposite mountains with a valley in between. The Philistines on one side, the uh, Israelites on the other. And out from the uh, Philistine camp walks this champion, Goliath, who either, if you, if you look at the earlier manuscripts or the later manuscripts, he, he was either six foot six or nine foot six. It depends on whether it's three or four span and uh, three or four cubits in a span. But uh, anyway, he was really tall. A lot taller than the Israelites, who on average were about five feet. So that's the ancient people's height. We've talked about this before. And so everybody is totally afraid. And he challenges the uh, Israelite camp to single combat to decide the fate of the nations. Nobody wants to meet that challenge. Saul, who was described as a head taller than anyone else in uh, in his nation... He doesn't go down there. David hears of it, and he is on it like flies on rice. And he is adamant that this has to happen. And, of course, the story is that he kills him, or at least knocks him down with uh, one stone in the center of the forehead, and then slays him, and the battle is won, and the Philistines are routed. And David rockets into fame for this one act alone, of course, but then subsequently brought into the court of the king, of King Saul. He is a warrior par excellence and is leading the armies to victory after victory after victory to the point that when they're walking through the streets of the city, the women are singing praises to Saul. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. Saul doesn't like this very much. The king is not pleased. From this point on, he becomes more and more resentful, bitter, jealous, and paranoid 
about the people's love for David, which is great. He is winning the hearts and minds of the people. And from that point on, he plots to kill him. And so he was given, he was, uh, had, he must have been bipolar. He had bouts of serious depression. And David would actually come and play the harp for him. Talk about a, a man of contradictions. Here's David, who rockets to fame as a warrior. He eventually becomes king, conqueror, unifier of, the, of all 12 tribes. He is an administrator. He's a, he's a reformer. And he's also a musician and a composer and a poet. How often do you get that? skill set mixed up. But David goes in and he's playing the harp for Saul to try to, you know, just calm him down. And at one point, Saul picks up a spear and tries to pin David to the wall. And David just gets out with his life. There are a couple other attempts on his life. And finally, David realizes it's not going to be safe here. So he flees into the wilderness and is essentially exiled from his own kingdom. And for years, he has to, he keeps trying to come back to Saul, but Saul is, is, cold one day and hot the other, and he just never knows which guy is going to show up. He's like a box of chocolates. You know, it's just, it's, it's in, so David has to live the life of a fugitive. But even as he does, he's, he's building more friends around him. He builds a band of men that follow him, and he then partakes in raids with these men to try to survive. But some of these raids are violent, and they're bordering on genocide, where they wipe out everyone in the villages that they are raiding and the villages that they are conquering. And so even at this point where he has been wronged by the king and was doing everything he was supposed to be doing, in reaction, he is committing all sorts of crimes. By ancient standards, you know, it was something that was done, but on the other hand, he is getting more and more blood on his hands as he goes over and over and over through these, these different raids and what he needs to do just to survive. Eventually, in another battle with the Philistines, Saul is killed, or actually he is wounded uh, by arrow fire and then commits suicide before he is captured by the enemy. And David is named king, anointed king of the southern tribes, the northern tribes are under the uh, successor of Saul, his, his eldest son, but he is assassinated two years later, and some scholars put the blame on David, but we don't know for sure. Scripture doesn't say, so we'll give him the benefit of the doubt on that one. But once, he, once the, uh, the son of Saul dies, David is able through military and diplomatic means to bring all the 12 tribes together and is the first time that there has been a unified kingdom. This is right around 1000 BC that this happens. And the kingdom is unified. David immediately then mounts a campaign and captures Jerusalem. And as he captures Jerusalem, he makes it his capital and, uh, and then makes that a, the capital over the entire nation of Israel. He brings the Ark of the Covenant and, and places it in, in Jerusalem. And he dances before the Ark. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But he has reformed this. At this point, he also starts to go through reforming the way that the, the Jews live. He brings a, a melding of religious and civil codes together. He brings music into the liturgy. He writes the Psalms and he compiles other Psalms and comes up with a national prayer book, if you will, that is the book of Psalms that we have today. But he was the one who was instituting this. By bringing the civil and the religious codes together and bringing a new form of worship that was now common to all the tribes, he really drove the connection of these tribes deeper together, gave them a common culture 
that they didn't have before as separate tribes. Then, in his campaigns to uh, consolidate more and more territory um, for this new nation, uh, he is home in the, in the uh, palace, the castle, his home, while his armies are out campaigning. And he sees a woman who is bathing, and it's Bathsheba, of course. And he wants her, and he has her, and he makes her pregnant. And then when he realizes that she is pregnant and her husband is out on the front lines, he quickly summons and brings the husband back and tries to get him to go back home and sleep with his wife so that the deed can be covered up and no one would know. But uh, her husband is, is so... He's got such integrity. He won't go home and sample the pleasures of his home while his you know, brothers in arms are sleeping in the field and, and in harm's way. So he just sleeps on the front steps of the, of the palace and won't go in. So once David realizes there's no way for him to cover up what has happened here, he sends Uriah back uh, out to the front lines with a note that he, he carries himself that is his own death warrant telling Yoab, the, the, the general, to put him in the front lines and then withdraw so that he will be killed. And that's what happens. Contradictions. Adultery and now murder. Covering up the crimes that he covered up. Nathan, the prophet, comes to him and calls him out on it and tells him from this point on, the sword will never leave your home. And it doesn't. First thing that happens is that Bathsheba's child that, that he had with her out of wedlock, and now she brings her in and makes her one of his harim, one of his eight wives. She becomes his eighth wife. Um, That son falls deathly ill and eventually dies, and David has to deal with that. His eldest son rapes his half-sister, Tamar, and David loves his son so much and loves his children and doesn't know how to deal with all this stuff. He doesn't punish Amnon for, for this crime. And then Absalom, who was the full brother of Tamar, eventually kills Amnon, and David pardons him. And then Amnon turns around and leads a full insurrection, wins the hearts of the people over, and actually creates civil war against his father and drives David out of Jerusalem, but then is killed in another battle, and uh, David returns. But it's intrigue after intrigue and all this stuff going on, In David's old age, his wife Bathsheba then plots and schemes to have her next-born son, Solomon, leapfrog over the eldest son and become king, saying that David gave her a secret vow. By this time, he's forgetful. He's probably in dementia. He's old and he's feeble and he really can't speak for himself. And he does anoint Solomon king over his eldest son. And as soon as David dies, then Solomon promptly has the other brother killed so that there's no problems there. You know, this is typical stuff that happens in courts that you read about in in royal courts. But this is God's beloved. What the heck's going on here? At one point, David knew that he wanted to build a house for the Ark of the Covenant, a house for God. It had always been under a tent. In all of Jewish history from Moses, it had been under a tent. He wants to build a house, and God says, no, you got too much blood on your hands. You cannot do this. And it does fall to his son Solomon, who finally builds the first temple. But imagine the bitter disappointment that he couldn't do that. This is the story of a man who is deeply, 
deeply flawed. And yet, he is God's beloved. How do we we understand this? How do we understand a man after God's own heart, after everything that I've told you, after everything that he was about and everything that he did? There are traits to David's character throughout his life that we need to take a look at. That even though he was flawed and given to excesses of all types, he always returned to certain touchstones. He always returned throughout his life to his God. No matter where he went, there was something about David that allowed him to do this. You can take a look in your inserts if you want to. I didn't write out the, um, the scriptures, but I'm, I'm giving the allusions, uh, uh, citations. I hope that what we're talking about right now will spur you on to want to go back and read Samuel 1 and 2 and 1 Kings and get the whole story and see if this makes sense to you. Because this picture of David is important for us to understand. If we're going to understand how we are the beloved of God, when we're not feeling like it, when we're not feeling worthy, we're not feeling like we deserve such a title. When... David goes into his battle with Goliath at 1 Samuel 17. This speech, you've got to go read the speech. He is as belligerent as he could possibly be. You know, he's like one of these boxers choosing on the other guy, and, and he is confident to the point of arrogance, and he just knows that he knows that he knows that there is no way that he can lose this battle, that this is the righteousness of God that is behind him. He has this naive hope. He has this boyish, youthful belief that all is going to be well, despite whatever seems to be going on. And we can chalk it up to his youth if we want to. But when you look at the totality of David's life, you see him coming back to this kind of hope, this kind of belief, this surety, this certainty that everything is going to be well. No matter what happens, there is a trust in David of God's love and God's promises that can't be shaken. Later, when Saul exiles him and, and is trying to kill him, and he's on the run with his men at 1 Samuel 18, 18, chapter 18 to 23, it's just on and on and on. Cat and mouse game between Saul and David. And we have uh, Jonathan, uh, Saul's son, who is a fast friend of David, helping David. And we have Saul's daughter, Michal, who is, was given to David as his first wife. She is also helping. So all of this intrigue is going on. These stories are amazing. You've got to read these stories. You can't make this stuff up. It's just so good. But when David eclipses Saul, and now Saul is jealous and paranoid, and, he's, and David's on the run, he is immediately making friends wherever he goes. There's something about David that connects him to others and something about David that wants to connect with others. So even as he loses one community, we see him building another. And eventually he attracts what the the scripture describes as 600 men following him and living in caves and living wherever that they're living and and always fleeing the armies of Saul because they're all going to be killed if he catches them. And yet there's a community there. David has a trust in God And he expresses it and lives it out in community, constantly in community. He loves his friends. He's ruthless to his enemies, but he loves his friends and he connects with them. David remains loyal to Saul no matter what Saul does. There are two 
amazing stories in 1 Samuel 24 and 26, where David has a prime opportunity to kill Saul. And, and again, the details, you just can't make this stuff up. He and a few of his men are hiding in a cave because that's where they were primarily living. And they're hiding in a cave as the armies of Saul come through. And Saul himself enters the very cave that David is in hiding with his men to relieve himself. And so they're hiding in the back. There's Saul in the front doing his thing. And David's men are saying, this is a perfect opportunity. You can get him literally with his pants down. You can get him. And David won't do it. But what does he do? He sneaks up to Saul and he slices off the edge of his robe. So he has the proof that he was there. And then he fades back into the darkness. And when Saul goes back out to his armies, David stands on the cliff face and shouts down to him and lets him know, I had the chance. Take a look at your robe, buddy. Here it is. But I didn't do it. And Saul says, oh, you're my son, you're my this and that. David doesn't trust him. He goes and heads out for the wilderness once again. A couple of chapters later, Saul's camp is all laid out and everyone's asleep. Saul is is asleep. All of his generals are around him. They're all asleep. Saul has his spear and a jug of water next to his head. And they're sneaking up into the camp and they're saying, this is your opportunity. Kill him. Let's be done with all of this. But he won't do it. He takes the spear. He takes the jug. And the same thing is repeated again. David was loyal to Saul's anointing of God. David was not going to contradict God's will as he understood it, which was that Saul was the anointed and he could not lay a hand on him. Regardless of what he was doing to him, regardless of how much that may have made his life easier, regardless of how it may have made him king, should Saul die, which is exactly what did happen. But it wouldn't be by David's hand. He remains loyal to that, loyal to his understanding of God's will. At 2 Samuel 6, this is after David is now king and he has consolidated all 12 tribes and he has conquered Jerusalem, taken it from the Jebusites. He brings the Ark of the Covenant in and as it's rolling in on its cart, David strips down to what is called an ephod, which is a linen tunic. It's what the the priest wore underneath their other vestments. Basically, he's in his underwear, all right? And he's dancing, and the scripture says, with all his might around the ark as it's rolling through the streets of Jerusalem to its resting place, wherever they're going to put it. And he is dancing, and the music's going on, and he has no regard for his station, that he is the king, no regard for how he looks or how he appears, He is just celebrating with absolute abandon, unselfconsciously before his God, that he is so joyous that the ark is coming home. Now, his wife, Michal, who's watching from the window, is not so impressed. And when he gets home that night, she lets him have it with both barrels. You know, yeah, that's fine. The king running around in his underwear. And and her scathing, denunciation of him earns her barrenness for the rest of her life, the scripture tells us. But David doesn't care. David is about expressing impetuously what he feels and the connection he feels with his God. At 2 Samuel 12, this is where Nathan confronts David over everything that he's done with Bathsheba and tells him the heartbreaking story of a man who just had one little sheep and a rich man who had hundreds of And yet when it came time for a sheep to be slaughtered to feed hospitably a guest, he goes and takes the poor man's sheep, kills it, 
And David says, who is this man? He needs to be punished. You are that man, Nathan tells him. Now, this is the king being told something he really doesn't want to hear, something he's really trying to keep under wraps by this upstart prophet, Nathan. He could have just flew into a rage. He could have had him killed. There's a lot of things he could have done. David doesn't do any of those. He immediately just... It's almost as if he's understanding what he did for the first time. Like he didn't get it through all of that. And all of a sudden, it all comes home to him, and he's horrified. I am that man. I did that. He admits his guilt immediately. He is accountable. This is when Nathan tells him the sword is never going to leave your house. He accepts that judgment because he knows it's just. David is accountable to the consequences of his actions. And he accepts the reprimand. He accepts the judgment graciously. And if you read Psalm 51, it is what he writes from the poet's heart about the regret, the remorse, the contrition that he feels over what he has done as he realizes it. In reaction to that, when his newborn son from Bathsheba falls ill, he goes into fasting mode. He won't eat. He won't sleep. He puts the ashes on his head. He won't bathe. He's freaking the rest of the court out because they think he's going to die, but he is praying as hard as he can because he thinks maybe. Here's that hope coming back in David. He knows this is the judgment that comes from what he did in their culture, but he's still praying and hoping maybe God will be merciful. The moment the son is dead, though, and he finds out, he gets up, he takes a bath, he washes and puts oil in his hair and eats a meal, and everyone is amazed. And he says, you know... While he was alive, I thought maybe there was a chance. But now that he's dead, he will never return to me. But I will go to him. He accepts without bitterness, without rancor, without blaming God or life, the universe, anything. He accepts the circumstances and he moves forward with that graciously. What does it take to be able to do that? At 2 Samuel 16, <laughs> there's a member of Saul's house who comes out of the, I don't know, out of the woodwork and is cursing David up and down in front of all his men in a public space as they are passing through on this particular road. And of course, David's lieutenants immediately, let me go cut his head off, you know. David says, no, 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 you know, just stop. You know. He may be speaking for God, who knows? He may be saying something that I need to hear. Who knows? But don't touch him. Let him be. You know, All these things will be taken care of in time. David was able, amazingly, to keep a sort of objective view of himself. He didn't believe his own PR to the extent that he was able to see who he was and to see when people came to him, he was able to ex- accept and, and sift through somehow, and to take a breath rather than sometimes, at least, react violently when he could have and had every right to. He had the patience. He had the acceptance. He had the accountability. At the same time, this great exuberance for God and loyalty, sense of community, trust. And then finally, there's a faithfulness to David. 
No matter what his sons do to him, he never stops loving them. You could even say that his love, especially for Amnon, you know, kind of moved over into a pathological place and maybe a codependent place because he wouldn't discipline him even when he raped his half-sister. And because of that, he fomented everything that, that flowed from that. But he never stopped loving his son and grieved terribly when he was killed by his other son. And then when that son is pardoned and then leads a civil war against him, David is still... Overcome with grief, he keeps hoping and he ordered all of his lieutenants as they were fighting against Absalom and his army, do not harm my son. Do whatever you need to do to put down the rebellion, but don't harm my son. Spare my son. There are some absolutely rich and amazing details in these stories. Absalom was described as a god. In, in his physical appearance. There was no flaw in him from his head to his feet. He was a perfect human form and human physical being, the, the form of a man. His hair was so rich and so thick, he had to cut it every year, cut it off every year because it got too heavy. And they even give he weighed it after he would cut it off, and they said it was 200 shekels of the royal uh, measurement, which equates to about five pounds of hair. You know, And, and they talk about him in this manner, right? When he is in this final battle, he is coming through on a mule through a forest and his hair gets stuck in the low-hanging branches of an oak tree and the mule rides right out from under him and he's left hanging by his head from this tree, completely helpless. And the, the, uh, the uh, servants of David come upon him, but they won't touch him because they knew what their king told them. You know, do not touch my son. Well, Joab, the general, has none of that and comes and puts a spear through his heart and all his men do him in. When the news comes to David of, of the, the victory in the battle, but what of my son? And no one wants to answer him. But what of my son? He has to ask twice. And finally, the second time, he is told the truth that his son is dead. And the cry could probably be heard throughout the city. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, would that I had died. I'm not you. Oh, Absalom, Absalom. And he continues to grieve in this hysterical manner so that his general is so angry because he says, you are dishonoring. The rest of us who fought and put our lives in jeopardy against this upstart son, and here you are grieving for him, what about us? What about Tamar when he wouldn't discipline Amnon? His love has blind spots. But he goes with it with all abandon, you know, all passion and faithfulness to those he loves. These are traits of character that set David apart. As flawed as he was, as heinous as some of his crimes were. Do you see what's going on here? Do you see what's happening? Why was David God's beloved? He was much worse than most of us will ever be. Too bloody to build God's house, right? But he was always able to recognize his failings and then throw himself on God's mercy because he never stopped believing in his God and trying to love those around him in his own way and always believing that God would forgive. God was there for him. 
He kept coming back and coming back. Never lost an objective view of himself that kept him humble and able to come back to relationship. Never lost the ability to believe God still loved him and forgave him no matter what. David was not God's beloved because he was better than us. David was not God's beloved because God chose him over us. David was God's beloved because he believed that he was and knew that he was and kept coming back to that place over and over again, no matter what he did, how far he strayed, or what happened in his life, he would come back to that place of belovedness. How does Henry Nouwen put it? To be chosen as the beloved of God is something radically different than we think. Instead of excluding others, it includes others. Instead of rejecting others as less valuable, it accepts others in their own uniqueness. It is not a competitive, but a compassionate choice. Our minds have great difficulty in coming to grips with such a reality. Maybe our minds will never understand it. Perhaps it is only our hearts that can accomplish this. Every time we hear about chosen people, chosen talents, or chosen friends, we almost automatically start thinking about elites and find ourselves not far from feelings of jealousy, anger, or resentment. Not seldom has the perception of others as being chosen led to aggression, violence, and war. When we claim and constantly reclaim the truth of being the chosen ones, we soon discover within ourselves a deep desire to reveal to others their own chosenness. Instead of making us feel that we are better, more precious, or valuable than others, our awareness of being chosen opens our eyes to the chosenness of others. That is the great joy of being chosen, the discovery that others are chosen as well. Once we deeply trust that we ourselves are precious in God's eyes, we are able to recognize the preciousness of others and their unique places in God's heart. We are all God's chosen. Every single one of us. We are all God's beloved. But only some of us know it. And even fewer of us live it. Live past the fear that debilitates us and sets us back. To keep coming back to it every setback that we face in life and to begin to see the chosenness of every person in our path and then to treat them as the beloved too. That's David's genius. And it's ours too if we'll accept it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for David. Thank you for every character of Scripture who is presented as he or she really is. With all the flaws, with all of the problems, mistakes, and crimes that show us that being beloved is not about our behavior. It's about who you are and who we are in relationship with you. Help us to make that disconnect, to break that link between earning and your love so that we can see that as flawed as we are, we are still your beloved, and so is everyone else. 
Help us to understand that so that we can reflect it, so that we can live it, so that we can give belovedness as well as receive it and enter into that blur of motion where giving and receiving and lover and beloved become one thing in our lives as well. That's what we want, Father. Help us to do that. And thank you for these way showers like David who can show us how it's done. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Never let us forget. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's all stand.